welcome to the Propel Podcast, inspiration and training to grow your church. I'm your host, Larry Witzel. Seventh-day Adventist churches grow differently, and our goal with this podcast is to offer practical training for effective evangelism in the Adventist ministry context. This episode features another breakout session from the church revitalization track. Tyler Long serves as the personal ministries director at the Washington Conference, overseeing evangelism, church planting, church revitalization, and Native American ministries. He's been involved in over 100 evangelistic meetings over the years, and he's passionate about church planting and church revitalization. He's got a master's in business administration, as well as a master's in marriage and family therapy. In this presentation, Tyler talks about revangelism a six-phase program he's developed at the Washington Conference to help revitalize churches, whether they're growing, plateaued, or declining. He discusses personal preparation, uh, building relationships in the community, uh, as well as how to find Bible study interests. Uh, One thing that I found interesting is he talks about a six-point plan for um, building a welcoming environment for guests. And he includes looking at the church website, social media, the, the curb appeal of the church, the lobby environment, uh, the best way to greet guests. There's a ton of meat in this presentation, so get ready to be blessed. First, I'd like to mention the sponsor of this episode, The Hope of Survivors. For over two decades, The Hope of Survivors has offered support services to victims of clergy sexual abuse. It's a 501c3 nonprofit with North American Adventist roots, which now supports victims around the world across numerous denominations. Requests come into a 24-hour system and are lovingly handled by confidential peer connections. One thing I noticed at the Propel Conference was the way a lot of attendees engaged with representatives from the organization. Some were hesitant to even admit that there is a problem, but others opened up with stories of loved ones or even themselves dealing with this kind of trauma. Uh, We are really grateful that they took the time to come to the Propel Conference, and we appreciate their support. You can learn more at thehopeofsurvivors.org. Let's go now to Tyler Long's presentation from the 2023 Propel Conference, Revangelism. I'm going to talk about revangelism. Now, the term revangelism is a term that we coined in the Washington Conference, and it combines both evangelism and church revitalization. Now, my name is Tyler Long, and I serve as the personal ministries director for the Washington Conference. And so um, I coordinate evangelism, and I do a couple of evangelistic meetings a year. But lately, I've been spending most of my time in church planting and in church revitalization. In the Washington Conference, in the last six years, we've planted 18 new churches that represent six different language groups. And one of the things we often hear when I talk about church planting, and it's a fair, I don't want to call it a criticism, but it's fair, is people will often say, why are we planting so many new churches when we have existing churches that are struggling? And I appreciated what, what Richie had to say about you've got one group on revitalization, you've got church planting sometimes. And so I, I wear both hats and I kind of hear it from both sides. But the reality is we need church plants, but we also need church revitalization. Now, we've been taking a number of churches in our conference through 
church revitalization, but I wanted to create something for our pastors, for our lay people that, you know, I don't necessarily have as much time to focus on all 124 churches. When we've got 10 churches I'm working with right now on church revitalization, we've got a couple of them represented here, Bonnie Lake and, and Highline. So we wanted to kind of, I wanted to create a, a do-it-yourself by looking at the best practices by studying the growing churches across North America and asking the question, what are they doing? Why do some churches grow and others don't? What are they doing? So we look at the best practices. And you know, what this is, in a nutshell, is it's a 18 to 24 month, now you could say 12 to 24 month or 12 to 18 month, but it is a cycle of church growth that doesn't just focus on evangelism, but it focuses on church revitalization. And what we've discovered is the goal in growing churches, one of the things they have is they have a culture, a healthy culture. So let me ask you the question, how do you change a culture? Or, or what creates a culture in the church? What creates a culture in any organization? Does anybody know? What creates the culture? The answer is very simple, and when I say it, you'll say, oh yeah, habits. Habits are what create culture. If you want to know where your church is going to be in three years, I can tell you where your church is going to be in three years. I'm not a prophet, but I can predict where your church will be in three years. You'll be in three years based upon the habits you're doing today. Where your church is today is based on the habits you've done over the last three or five years. So it's all about creating habits, creating culture. Um, I was in Walmart uh, about a month ago, and I was looking for, it's called, um, it's called, uh, I think they're called nose pods or, no, they're called nampons. Nampons. It kind of sounds like a feminine product, tampons, but they're nampons. They're for nosebleeds because my son Nate always gets nosebleeds. And it's, it's what they use actually like on the battlefield, it has this white powdery stuff that helps stop bleeding, but you stick this little thing up the nose and it has this powder stuff on. If you ever watch like a war movie when they, somebody gets shot and they kind of pull open the guy's shirt and they sprinkle that white powder, you know, that's, that's to stop the bleeding, the, uh, to create a uh, coagulation. So I asked the lady at Walmart, do you have any nampons? And she was one of the ladies that was pushing those big giant carts where they do the self-shopping. You know, that's a new thing now. And I said to her, I said, oh, you're just the person I need to see because you know where everything is. I said, do you know where nampons are? Have you ever heard of nampons? She said to me, I've got one job, and that's to get the stuff on this list. That's what she said to me. I said, so you're telling me you can't help me? She said, that's exactly right. But now if you go to a Costco or you go to a Trader Joe's and you find one of their employees and you say, hey, I'm looking for a particular product, what are they gonna do? Because there's a culture difference, right? There's a culture there. And so we're looking at, or we're talking about creating culture by creating good habits. All right, everything we do when it comes to turning a church around through church revitalization, everything we do, it focuses on the leadership. 
And so when I work with the church, whether it's revangelism, which is a combined term of revitalization and evangelism or church revitalization, we always focus on the leadership. Because here's the reality. The first job of a leader is to do what? define reality. The first job of any leader is to define reality. Now, during the COVID pandemic, whether it was the virus or some will say the government policies, but the reality is, you know, reality was defined for us during that time. And a lot of churches realized where they were at as a result of the habits they had created over the years. In many churches, their attendance quickly dropped down. I was uh, reading a book recently called Extreme Ownership. It's by a former uh, Navy SEAL named Jocko. And one of the things he says in the book that really stood out to me was, leaders must own everything in their world. There was no one else to blame. And the reason that quote really stuck with me is because church revitalization sounds really cool, until you do it. The biggest challenge with church revitalization is defining reality. Now, if reality is great and you've got a growing church and it's healthy and there's a culture, then it's fun to define reality. But what happens when you're a leader in your local church and you define reality and reality isn't so great? How many of you go in every year and do a physical exam with your doctor? How many of you do that? Do you do that? I hope you do that. When you go and see your doctor every year and get a physical exam, is your doctor defining reality for you, yes or no? Yes. Yeah, I hope so, right? <laughs> what do they do? They, they get you on a scale, you know? They, I don't know, take your blood pressure, check your oxygen. They're checking all these things. What they're doing is they're defining reality. Now, if you're really healthy and, and all the vital signs are good, it's kind of fun getting the reality, right? When the doctor says, man, your blood pressure looks good, your heart rate, your weight, I mean, your, your BMI, man, you are doing great. That's very encouraging, but what happens when the doctor says to you, you know, based upon your chart, you need to lose 15 pounds or maybe 30 pounds or you need to start exercising. You need to I mean, that kind of reality doesn't sit as well with us. And so the first job of a leader is to define reality. But then the local leadership, they also have to own it. They have to own it. Now, with church revitalization, if a church has a brand new pastor and the pastor's only been there for, say, six months or less, then, you know, they really haven't influenced the church much because they haven't had time. But when you've got a church and the pastor's been there for three years, five years, or ten years, and then you define reality and reality isn't that great, well, then the local pastor has to own it. Now, we can blame the conference, right? We can blame the government. We can blame what, what, what Richie said, you know, the Democrats or the Republicans, right? We can blame everything else, but the truth is we have to own it. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to define reality for the Washington Conference. And what we do in defining reality is every church has been put into one of four categories. I don't know if they talk to you about this one of the nights, maybe Jose did. Across North America, every church has been put into four categories. Now, I'm going to share with you the Washington Conference's numbers, all right? I'm going to start back in 2019. In 2019, this is what the Washington Conference looked like. 
Now, based on the metrics, did they in one of the presentations, maybe Jose, did he go over what the metrics were as far as like attendance and baptisms are? Did he go over that for how? Okay, so basically, I'll, I'll, I'll go through it real quick. So to be a growing church, you have to have 2% growth in attendance and 2% growth in baptism. To be a plateau church, I think it's like 1% growth. And then, of course, declining would be, well, declining. So in 2019, my conference, the Washington Conference, is where I was baptized. It's where I served. Nearly 70% of our churches were in decline. Now, this doesn't look very good, but if you compare this to other conferences across North America, guess what? It looks pretty similar. It looks pretty similar, all right? Now, 2020 hit, that was the pandemic. Do you think the numbers got better? Or you think they got worse? worse? This is what my conference looked like in 2020. 83%. If you combine that with the plateauing, you've got 90% of our churches have either plateaued or they're in decline. 90%. Now, in 2021, you think the numbers got better or you think they got worse? They got better. They got a little bit better. In fact, in 2021, notice this. Now we only have 66% in decline, 15% plateauing, 19% growing, 1% multiplying. So things are getting better. So one of the things we've been doing in the Washington Conference with revangelism is as I speak at churches, and some of you at, at Bonnie Lake and, and at Highline, you've probably seen these charts because I've shared them with you, and uh, is, is we're defining reality and we're letting churches know your local church, every church in the Washington Conference, every church in the Union across the NAD is in one of these four categories. Now, 2022 came. You think our numbers got worse or you think they got better? Worse. You think worse? Better. They actually got better. They got a lot better. Look at this. This is based upon last year. Now we have 39% of our churches are growing. Only 45. If you combine the 45, or you got 45 in decline, when you combine growing and multiplying, it is now the same as decline. You see, we have a goal. Is it important to set goals, yes or no? The goal in the Washington Conference, what we're praying for, what we're working for, is for 70% of our churches to be at least in the growing category. That's our goal. And I, I preach it, I share it, 70%. Now here's the killer. This is, I mean, this, this eats at me. This keeps me up at night. So I like numbers. So the 45% of our churches that were in decline last year, I studied those 40, not 45 churches, they were 45%, but I studied those churches. It was about 50 churches because we have about 124 churches, groups, and companies. 30 of these churches, check this out, 30 of these churches, they met the criteria as far as attendance growth to be in the growing category. But when it came to the baptismal growth, 30%, I'm sorry, not 30%, 30 of these 45% of the declining, 30 churches, all they needed was one baptism. And they would have gone from the declining category to the growing category. Think about that. That's, that's how close they were. If 30 of the churches over here had one baptism, 
they would have been in this category. And you add 30 churches to this, I don't know what the number would go up to. I'm sure you, if, you're a math, if you're a math nerd, you could probably quickly calculate it. But it'd be pretty close to 70%. One baptism. Now, when I share this, this graph with churches, I like to ask churches, which one of those four do you think you're in? What's, what's interesting is, and I, I already know the answer when I ask the church board or the church this, but churches that are in decline, they tend to think they're doing a little bit better. <laughs> and churches that are in growing, they always rate themselves as doing not as good. I, I find that very interesting. But here's what's really cool. Here's what gets me excited is 6% are in multiplying. Now, there are about 70 churches across North America that are multiplying. That means they're both growing. They have 2% growth in, I'm sorry, to be multiplying, I think you have to have 5% growth in baptisms, 5% growth in attendance, and involved in the church plant in the last seven years. One out of every 10 multiplying churches in North America is in the Washington Conference. I praise God for that. I'm excited. I can brag a little bit, right? Now, notice how we compare to the Union. This is the North Pacific Union Conference. So the Washington Conference is actually doing a little bit better compared to the overall average of the Union. Compared to the North American Division, you've got 52% in decline, only 1% multiplying, 36% growing. But going back and comparing to my own conference, you can see that Washington, we're not dragging the numbers down, but we're actually doing what? We're lifting them up, right? We're helping those percentages. And one of the reasons, I think, is we've become very intentional about church revitalization. And that's how the term revangelism was born. Now, whenever we start a process, whenever we start, I hate to use the word program, but whenever we start revitalization or revangelism, one of the very first things I do is I always meet with the local pastor. And I always sit down over lunch with the pastor and I walk the pastor through exactly what I'm going to do. And the reason is because I never want to get ahead of the pastor because my goal is to eventually meet with the church board, speak at the church on these issues, and I always want to share with the local pastor. That way when I'm at the church board and I'm talking to the board, I'm not presenting something that catches the local pastor off guard. So I always tell the pastor, here are some of the things that I'm going to go over. In fact, one of my favorite quotes that I love to share with every church I go to is this quote by Henry Ford. He says, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always gotten. I love to tell the church, if you're happy with your results, if you like where your church is at today, in other words, if you like your habits, then keep doing what you're doing. Because I promise you, if you keep doing what you're doing, you'll always get the same results, right? But if you don't like where you're at, if you want to create a change, if you want to experience growth, the way you do that is you have to create new habits. Because habits are what form culture. And you can tell the difference when you're in a church and they have a growth mindset, there is a culture in that church. And it's not the average church member that creates that culture. It's the local pastor. It's the church board. Everything rises and falls on what? Leadership. The leaders create the culture. And the 
greatest challenge in being a leader is you have to accept the results, right? If they're good, it's easy to accept them. But if they're bad, a true leader will take ownership and say, yes, that's on me. You know, we need to make changes. We need to do something different. So let me talk about revangelism now, all right? Let's talk about revangelism. In fact, I'm going to give each of you something just for coming in here today. Can I get a volunteer that would like? Would you help me, sir? Would you pass this out? Everybody gets one of these. This is a car air freshener. I need one more volunteer. Oh, thank you, Pastor. And everybody gets a pen. So when you stop in at the Washington Conference, when you come into the front or the front lobby there, you'll see a banner that looks kind of like this right here. It's got the revangelism cycle on it. You'll also see there's some pens. Now, if you open it up, it's going to be pretty strong. But you can open it. It's a nice citrus smell. Can you smell it through the plastic? If you open it up, the room's going to smell nice and citrusy. And so what you'll see on that air freshener, there's a QR code. You all know what a QR code is, yeah? On, oh, thank you so much. On that air freshener is a QR code. On your pen, it's a banner pen, if you open it up like this, wow. on both sides, you'll see there's also a QR code. There's also a QR code on the banner right here, which is in the front lobby of the conference office, because what we want to do is we want folks, when they visit the Washington Conference, that are interested in growing their church, to grab an air freshener, because they will hang that in their car, right? And they'll see it as they drive around. They'll see what it, what does it say on there? It, I mean, let me grab one. I created it, but I can't remember what it says. It says, church growth is one click away. Re-energize your church. And so if you were to take out your phone, I don't know if it would work through the plastic. Maybe the string might be in the way. But if you take out, open your camera, that'll take you to this right here. So when you go to the Washington Conference website, you're going to see this page right here. And the question that we're asking is this, is your church growing, plateaued, or declining? If you go to that QR code, it'll actually take you to this video here. It's a one-minute video where I'm encouraging you as the viewer to ask the question, is my church growing, plateaued, or is my church in decline? And then in the short video, I invite the viewer to scroll on down. Let me go to my next slide here. To scroll on down and to schedule a church growth consultation. And it, once they schedule a consultation, it, that email comes directly to me, either myself or my associate, our conference evangelist, Nehemiah. Either one of us will actually go and meet with the pastor or will meet with the church board. I never meet with the church board unless I've first spoken with the pastor. The pastor's the gatekeeper there. So a lot of times I get requests from lay members and they'll say, oh yeah, I saw this and, and I want you to come and talk at our next board. And the first question I ask is, have you spoken to your pastor yet? You know, does your pastor know this? And do you mind if I call your pastor? Because I want to make sure I never want to do anything that is like, you know, going, working around. I always want to include the local pastor. And so what they'll do is they'll schedule a growth consultation. Now, the way revangelism is set up, let me go through a couple of, these are just screenshots of what's on, on, on our site there. And so as you scroll down the page, the very first thing you'll come to is you'll come to an introduction video. 
The way we have it set up is there will be a video, and then below each video, there will be different links that you can click on. So this first video right here is just a big picture. It's an introduction. It's, it's this whole presentation I'm doing right now condensed into 14 minutes. You're thinking, man, you could do all this in 14 minutes. I could catch this class and then go to, a, to, go to another one, right? But uh, I'm giving you the, 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 the works here. And so you watch that video. In fact, notice the question I ask. I don't know if you can read it there on the screen. It says, does your church have more committees than conversions? Does it have more committees? Okay, you were saying yes, it does. Not just, oh, yes, but like, yes, it, it does. Should a church have more baptisms than committees every year? Yes or no? Absolutely. And so you watch the video, and then below it are a series of links. Now, one of the links you'll see, I don't know if you can read this, but it has... It says, meet Tyler and Nehemiah. It has our bio. It describes who we are, our, our ministry background. Um, and then we created a promotional package with slides and graphics for the local pastor the church can use. And then right below that is the budget form. Now, this is what our budget form looks like. Nothing fancy, but this is what our budget form looks like. So any church in our conference that wants money for an evangelistic effort, this is the budget. Now, it's a screenshot. So there's actually a phase six, which would be like right down here, which is preserving the harvest. But what this does is it follows what we call the cycle of evangelism. And so you start off with phase one, which is personal preparation. Phase two is, is cultivate the soil. Phase three is planting and sowing. Phase four is irrigating and cultivating. Phase five is harvest. Phase six is preserving the harvest. Now, we've already plugged in the formulas on this Excel spreadsheet. And so what we're looking for is once a church or a pastor fills this out, every phase, the conference will fund at 50%, except for the harvest phase, which is phase five, we will fund at 70%. So the evangelistic meeting, the conference covers at 70%. All of the other phases we cover at 50%, including the one that got cut off, and that's the preserving the harvest, or phase five. And so what we did is we looked at, you know, Jesus and his parables often use like the agricultural cycle to, to describe soul winning. And so if you know anything about gardening or planting, if you're familiar with gardening and planting, then you'll understand that this cycle of church growth follows this planting, harvesting, perpetuating the harvest cycle. Yes, sir? you ever work with churches outside your conference? Yeah, we do, but we won't fund churches outside our conference. <laughs> your local conference would have to fund that. But, but I'm going to brag up my conference just a little bit, all right? We fund your pre-work. In fact, what we're looking for is, you know, in the past, and I'm guilty of this, I'll take ownership of this, in the past, our budget that churches submitted, the only thing they would put on there is which phase? Anybody want to guess? The harvest. the harvest phase, right? We often encourage, hey, you ought to do some more pre-work, you ought to do some more follow-up, right? See, my idea is like 40% should be pre-work, you know, 20% the meeting and 40% the follow-up. That's kind of what we want to see in the budget. And I'm guilty of our old budgets only focused on the harvest. What we're saying now is, no, we need to do more in pre-work. And not just say it, but we wanted to create a roadmap 
and then we wanted to fund it because you always know what's important by simply looking at the budget. Look at where the money goes and that will tell you what's important. Yes, sir? You're probably going to get into this, but do you have any results of how your efforts... I will. I will get into that. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate you asking that, though. Now, here's... In fact, I would say this. I think the goal of every church... This might seem crazy, but I think the goal of every church budget is at least... This is just the starting point, but at least one-tenth of the budget should go to local evangelism. One-tenth of the... That's just the starting point. One-tenth should go to soul winning. And the reason I say that is when I study churches that are growing, plateaued, or in decline, the churches that are growing, they spend more money on evangelism, local evangelism. Now, when I say evangelism, I'm not, I'm not just talking about the evangelistic series, but that's just a broad term for everything in soul winning, whereas churches that are in decline usually spend very little money, if anything, on soul winning. And that's part of the reason why they're in decline. Now, as I've studied growing churches, I'm going to distill everything down to this one slide. This one slide is going to show you what the winning formula is. This is the winning formula. And everything I've studied on growing churches, this is the winning formula distilled down into a mathematical equation. You've got prayer. Does church growth happen without prayer, yes or no? It really doesn't. Prayer plus the Holy Spirit. That's the difference the local church or the, the early church in Acts. They have the Holy Spirit. Prayer plus the Holy Spirit plus faith-based optimism. If you've ever read the book, The Big Four, by, by uh, Joseph Kidder, he talks about faith-based optimism. It's this belief. This is the culture aspect now. It's this belief that the best days are always still out in front. When you combine prayer, the Holy Spirit, faith-based optimism. Now, here's another one that people often miss, intentionality. Everything the church does has to be done with excellence, has to be very, very intentional. And you combine all those things and you're going to have a winning combination. I love this quote by A.W. Tozer. He says, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and nobody would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would what? Know the difference. Praying for that Holy Spirit, and I appreciate Richie, he talked a lot about prayer and shared some great quotes on prayer and the Holy Spirit, and that's needed. Now, I, I said I was going to brag a little bit on my, my own conference. Um, when I've talked with other evangelism coordinators and directors across North America, I will say this. I have not found another conference that funds evangelism at the same level as the Washington Conference does. I have not seen another conference. I've seen some that will say we'll cover 50% or up to 15,000 or up to 10,000. Um, we have never said no to a church's request. And I've been up there for nine plus years now. We've never said no to any church. Now we've said, hey, let's, let's kind of revamp. Let's work on that budget. Maybe let's not put as much into just mailings, but what are some of the pre-work? What are some of the follow-up? And so we work with that, but we've never ever said 
no. We've never said no to that. And so I love this quote. Now let's get going into these different phases. So phase one is the personal preparation phase. Phase one is the personal preparation. So again, each phase, and you can go home and watch these. You got the QR code. Now, if you're not from the Washington Conference, um, if you schedule a consultation, I'll, I'll call you. But, you know, I, I, you know, most of my time is really directed to the churches in my own conference. But, but you can watch the videos because these videos are based on best practices for growing churches. So phase one, I'm talking about in this video, what should a church be doing during the personal preparation? And then right below phase one are a series of different links. Um, for example... One of the things that we do for churches that sign up now, the local church will cover part of this, but we'll send, there's a $100 fee for this that the local church does pay, $100, but we'll send a secret visitor to that church. I think we did that with Bonnie Lake. I think we did that with Highline. We sent a secret visitor. Did you know we did that? We sent, you know we did that. We send a secret visitor. So I've got a, a, a few people that I work with in the Washington Conference, and they've got, it's like a four or five page sheet that they fill out, and, and they'll go and visit your church, and they'll start, they have to be there for, well, they have to first look at the website, then they look at the parking lot, they talk about the green, they look at the, they go through into the bathrooms, they, they go to a Sabbath school, if they've got kids, they'll bring their child to their children's Sabbath school, they sit in the church service, they go when there's a fellowship lunch, they grade everything in an honest way to let the local church know this is what we experienced in visiting your church. Because often what happens is you'll ask a church, is your church friendly? And the members will often say, we're the friendliest church in town. But what happens is they forget, you know, because they've been a long-time member, and so everybody knows them, so they just, you know, it feels friendly, but they forget what it's like to walk in for the very first time. Now, I mentioned to you earlier that before I start this journey, I always meet with the local pastor. And so I meet with the pastor, I share with the pastor exactly what I'm going to talk about with the church board, and then I meet with the church board. So step one is I meet with the church board. I've already talked to the pastor, but now I meet with the church board, and there are six questions that I ask the church board. Now you can take a picture of this if you want, you may want to wait until all six questions are up there, Just, but, so I'll give you time. So here's the questions I ask. Number one. Now, keep in mind, the highest level of simplicity is, is in asking these questions. I tell the church board, this is your church. I'm here to serve you. I want to know about your church. I remind them that my department, the Washington Conference, we are here uh, not to do all of the work for you, but to simply serve you and to be a resource for you. So the first question I ask is, what are two to three things that you like most about your church. I really want to tap into the strengths. I want to tap into some of the good history. What do they like most about their church? And I'm taking notes as the board members are, 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 are giving me the answers. Question number two is, um, if there was one thing that you could change, what would that look like? Or what would that be? What's one thing you would change about your church? The next question I ask is, what are you currently doing that is not working? Now, I'm not just looking for answers, but I'm also looking to see how does the church board react 
to these questions. And I'll get into that in just a moment. Question number four, are there any reasons why somebody would be hesitant to bring a guest to church? Number five, what does a healthy church look like to you? Now, the most common answers I get are, you know, a church filled with kids and, and young families. I, I get that all the time. Number six, what do you really want? And then I ask them, okay, what do you really, really want? If you want to take a picture of this, this is the last question I ask. But notice I ask the question, what do you really, really, really want? You know, it's like when Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? How many times did Jesus ask Peter? Yeah, because when you say, what do you really want? Usually the first answer they'll say is, well, you know, we want to grow. Okay, but what do you really, really want? And what you're doing is you're, you're, you're trying to dig in a little bit deeper, asking the question, what do you really, really, really want? And I had somebody at one of our church boards recently, they said to me, they said, I want to leave our church to the next generation better off than I received it. And that was really the core of what he wanted. He wanted to leave the church better off for the next generation. And so, but that wasn't the first answer they gave. The first answer was, we want to have a healthy church. And so I asked the question, what do you really, really, really want? And give them time to respond. Now, step two under phase one is the church will take the natural church development, and I already mentioned they do the secret visitor. There's no particular order that I do, do these. It's usually just based on you know, when I can schedule the secret visitor and when the church is available to do the natural church development. Because remember, step one, the number one goal of every leader is you have to define what? Reality. And so the natural church development and sending the secret visitor, that is how you define reality for that local church. And also the questions that I just asked. In fact, let me go back real quick. Um, these questions that I ask, I like to see how the church board responds. If they, you know, if there's a member on there that seems kind of agitated or a little bit upset that I'm asking the question, usually the question that usually gets them the most is um, number four. What reasons would somebody be hesitant to bring a guest to church? If, if a board member gets upset or defensive in asking this question, it doesn't mean that they can't go through revitalization or revangelism, but what it tells me and what I later share with the pastor is this board member, there's going to be some challenges ahead because they got defensive right away. That's like, the, that's like you go to the doctor and the doctor says, can you get up on the scale? You get on the scale and the, and the scale says you're 15 pounds overweight and you get angry at the doctor, right? They're just asking, he's just asking or she's just asking you questions. And so if they get defensive right away, it tells me there might be some issues going on here with this particular board member. And I, I talk with the pastor about that. I don't share with the whole board, but I let the pastor know. So the next step is, getting back to this, is natural church development. How many of you are familiar with natural church development? Some of you are. How many of you have never heard the term before? Just be honest. So natural church development um, is, is a very good way at, at deciphering what are the strengths and what are the weaknesses of the local church. There are 90 
multiple questions in the NCD survey, that's Natural Church Development, NCD survey. It can either be done online or it can be done in person on like, you know, paper like you did, did tests when you were a kid. And what the NCD looks at is it looks at eight key areas of church health. Now, NCD was very popular like 15, 20 years ago. When I was a traveling evangelist, I found a lot of churches were taking the NCD survey. Even today, when I go in and I work with a church, they'll often say to me, oh yeah, we took the NCD survey like 10 or 15 years ago. But here's the incredible thing. Like over 90% of churches that tell me we took that survey 10 or 15 years ago, when I ask the question, well, what did you do with the results of that survey? Guess what they say? <laughs> so just because you took the survey, if you don't actually work the survey and, and look at your strengths and your weaknesses, then that's again, it's like going to get a physical exam. The doctor says you got to lose weight, you got to walk, you got to eat healthy, and you ignore the doctor's advice. I mean, yeah, you took a physical exam, but what good did it do for you, really? It just, it defined reality, but you didn't do anything with the answers that they gave you. So there's eight key areas. Now, I'm going to show you a couple of surveys that we took in the Washington Conference in the last six months. I'm not going to show you the church's name, all right, just because they didn't give me permission. But here's the first survey. So this is what the results look like. And so there's eight areas. There's empowering leadership, there's gift-based ministry, passionate spirituality, effective structures, inspiring worship, holistic small groups, need-oriented evangelism, loving relationships, and then it gives you an average. Now, the average score across most churches, the average score is going to be like a 50. 50 is like a passing grade. I know usually in school a 50 would be like an F, but in this a 50 is a passing grade, all right? Now, I'm not going to show you or tell you which church this is right here, but by looking at their scores, let me ask you, do you think this church is growing, plateaued, or in decline? If you had to guess, just based upon these scores, growing, I guess I could say multiplying, multiplying, growing, plateaued, or decline, what would you say? Just based upon these scores. Who said decline? You are the winner. This church is in decline. Now, I've had a chance to study these numbers and, and dig a little bit deeper, but there's a few things that really stand out to me. Now, in all NCD surveys, what you want to do is you want to do two things. You want to do the survey. You want to focus on what your lowest score is. In this case, what's their lowest score? Small groups. Typically among Seventh-day Adventist churches, typically the lowest score is going to be small groups, holistic small groups. But if you had to score low in anything, this is actually the best one to score low in, believe it or not, small groups. And what you do is you take the survey, and the goal is to work on your lowest factor, Often you can tap into your, straight, your, your greatest strength, which is passionate spirituality. Use your greatest strength to help bring up your lowest factor. And so you want to take this survey every 18 months with the goal of working your lowest factor and also improving your overall average. 
So this church is in decline. Now let me show you how this church compares with other Adventist churches. So if we were to take all the Seventh-day Adventist churches across North America, this is the average church's score. Now, the one up here in bold, this is what the average Adventist church gets in those different categories. And so you can see that holistic small groups is, in fact, the lowest one typically. Not by much, but it is the lowest one. The highest one in most churches is going to be passionate spirituality. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, Need-oriented evangelism or passionate spirituality. But that is the average across Seventh-day Adventist churches. Do you have your hand up, sir? Yeah. What's the difference between a holistic and a non-holistic small group? Well, the idea of a holistic is that it reaches the entire person. Both spiritual, emotional, mental, physical, it, and uh, so that's that's the idea. Now, when I see this, let me go back one slide. When I see this, not only do I see they've got really low and small groups. The benefit of improving small groups is it can actually improve all of the other ones. Because you think about small groups, you know, small groups are about loving relationships. Small groups are about evangelism, right? Small groups are about passionate spirituality. Small groups are about gift faith, you know, ministry. Small groups are about empowering leadership. So if you're going to be small in anything, be, or be, be you know, uh, the lowest in anything, be lowest in small groups. But what really stands out in my mind on this particular score is the fact that passionate spirituality compared to holistic small groups, there's a 40-point spread between these two. And anytime you see a spread between your highest and lowest, that's at least 30-point difference, it doesn't tell you exactly what's happening, but it does tell you there's something major brewing that, that, that is going to eventually erupt. And so in this church, the fact they've got a 40-point spread uh, makes me wonder what exactly is going on under the, service, uh, under the sur uh, surface. Now, here's another church we did in the Washington Conference. This was done back in February a couple of months ago. Notice those scores. Do you think this church is multiplying, growing, plateaued, or in decline? This is a multiplying church. Can you see the difference, yes or no? Look at this church. Their lowest factor is inspiring worship service. Their lowest factor is four points higher than the declining church's highest one. And so a, a, a multiplying church, you can clearly see the difference. In this church here, they do every form of evangelism under the sun every single year. Not only is this church one of our highest tithe-paying churches in the conference, but it's also one of our highest churches when it comes to baptisms, profession of faith, and different conversions. And so this is ultimately the goal. But even with this church... I met with the pastor and I said, look, pastor, your lowest factor is inspiring worship service. While we can celebrate your high scores, the goal for this church over the next 18 months is to work on inspiring worship service and work on empowering leadership. And here's why. If a church takes an NCD survey three times, every 18 months, three times, if all they do is work on their lowest factor and work on improving their overall average. If all they do, everything at the Propel Conference, let's say we ignored everything, not that I recommend doing that, but you ignored everything, and all the church did was the NCD survey every 18 months 
with the goal of working on the lowest factor, the goal of improving your average, over 80% of churches grow in quality and quantity. Think about that. Just doing the NCD survey. That's it. Now, with revangelism, the Washington Conference, we told our pastors last year, the first 25 churches that sign up for evangelism, the Washington Conference <clears throat> will cover the cost of your NCD survey, which is about a $200 cost, a little bit more, about $240 or so. And so the Washington Conference, we said the evangelism department will cover that cost. And we've done that so far. Now, step number three, still under phase one, is again, the idea is we want to invest in our local leaders. And so we assign books. This is all underneath phase one. We assign books. We want our local leadership to read two books. Those books are number one, Anatomy of a Revived Church by Tom Rayner. There's another book that he wrote called Autopsy of a deceased church. That's another book. I don't have the picture here, but that's another book we recommend our local leadership reads. And another book during phase one is Becoming a Mission-Driven Church. Now, those of you that are from the Washington Conference and your church is going through revitalization, has your church done all this so far? Yes or no? Yes. Working, on it. Working on it. Amen, right? <laughs> it's a journey, let me tell you. If it was easy, everybody would do it. It's a journey. It's a journey, all right? Now, I'll tell you, when it comes to effective structures, when it comes to strategic planning, this book right here, now this is written by Adventists. This is written by Baptists, but, you know, it's good stuff in there. Not that I'm a Baptist. I don't endorse all of the theology. But on church revitalization, Tom Rainier's got some really good stuff. This book right here, written by Paul Brantley, Dan Jackson, Mike Cauley, this, I believe, is the best book out there today on strategic planning for the Adventist church. Now, this book has made its rounds around conferences and at pastors' meetings. This book has been given out. But what I find is very few people read the book. And, and, and the reason is, is it, and I'll be honest, it reads almost like a college textbook. You know, you know, this book right here is, you know, small. It's really thin. You could read it over a weekend. You could sit down in one day and you could just breeze right through. It's, it's easy reading. This one right here is more like a, like a manual, like a college textbook. So what we do with churches when we give them this book right here is I tell the church there's 15 chapters in this book, 15 chapters. Now, unless you're very left-brained, and like analytical organizational mindset like I am, like I love reading this right here. This is like, I, I've read this book multiple times, but not everybody is wired that way. And so I encourage church boards, just the board, read one chapter every what? Every month. Some of you know that. Read one chapter every month and then dedicate the first part of every church board meeting to discussing what you read in that chapter. Because this book has five, uh, five sections divided into 15 chapters. This book is all about strategic planning. It's all about creating habits. It talks about the need of having a mission statement. It talks about the need of having a vision statement. It talks about how to create wildly important goals and how to organize your teams. And so it's really, really good but it's something you want to read over the course of a period of time. Something else we do for churches that sign up with revangelism for the Washington Conference, we've said the first 25 churches, we will cover the cost 
of the church getting a church database. Now, not like an e-Adventist database. We've actually purchased in bulk the attendance tracker from SermonView along with the SMS text messaging feature. And so churches in the Washington Conference that sign up for evangelism will cover the cost of having text messaging for an, an entire year to have that database for an entire year, including having the NCD survey. And so again, we really want to invest in creating this healthy culture. Now, another formula that I want to share with you comes from a book I recently read called The Compound Effect. It's not, a, it's not a spiritual book. It's more of a business type book. But there's some great spiritual lessons in it. You see, the compound effect is about making small, smart choices consistently over time creates huge, huge, you know, returns in the end. For example, think about financially. How many of you understand the term compounding when it comes to your retirement, right? The money you put in when you're 20 years old doesn't grow very much, does it? The money you put in when you're 30 doesn't grow very much, but that money, if you start when you're young, even if you're just putting $100 a month, even if you're just putting 400 bucks a month when you're in your 20s and 30s and 40s, by the time you get to retirement age, what's that money doing? It's compounding. And that $100 you put in back in your 20s has compounded where when you're in your late 50s and early 60s on a good year, your money is now making more money than you are working a you know, salaried position. And that's the ultimate goal when it comes to retirement is that your money has now replaced and it's making more money. So the same idea is with churches. See, you can take like two different churches, take three churches, declining, plateauing, growing. Those churches are doing radically different things. But if you go back and visit those churches a week later, you're not going to see much difference between the three churches. Go back and visit those three churches, one that is plateaued, one that is growing, one that is declined. Go back and visit those same churches three years or five years later. Will you now begin to see a difference, yes or no? Because that church that's growing, what are they doing? They're making small, smart choices consistently over time, right? And that's how they end up growing. In fact, notice this. The main difference between growing and declining churches is growing churches do consistently what declining churches do occasionally. That's the main difference. I'll get you in just a second. Growing churches do consistently. And what happens is it's easy to discount that church's consistency. You see, you take a growing church, they've got a database. They're praying over their database. You've got a pastor who's preaching, you know, heartfelt, you know, gospel sermons up front. They've got leadership. They're creating a culture. They've got focused on prayer. They're doing annual reaping meetings. And sure, they may do an evangelistic meeting. One year they baptize three people. And then the next year they may baptize 15 people. But then they're starting small groups. They're running VBS. They're organized. They're intentional. They're praying for the Holy Spirit. They're consistently doing smart things over a long period of time. And they're growing. You don't see it week to week. You don't even see the difference month to month. 
But when you stand back and look at three or five years, you begin to really notice the compound effect. Does that make sense? Yes or no? Yeah. It's the same thing with our health. Take two different guys. You've got one guy who decides that, you know, every morning before work, he's going to drive through Starbucks and get a, get a you know, a high caloried, you know, empty, you know, uh, empty calorie drink and a muffin. He goes home in the evening. He just sits on the couch. He doesn't want to exercise, right? All he listens to every day is political talk radio. Take that guy and compare him with this other guy in the morning. No, he's not. He's not going through Starbucks and, and, and consuming empty calories. He's eating a healthy breakfast, right? At lunch, he decided, I'm not going to drink that 16-ounce or that 20-ounce soda. I'm going to drink water instead. On the way to work, he's not listening to political talk radio. He's listening to sermons. He's listening to uplifting, motivational talks. In the evening, he's not sitting on the couch watching TV. He says to his wife, hey, let's go for a walk every evening. You take those two scenarios, you follow those guys for one week, just one week, you're not going to see much difference. They both get on the scale, they probably weigh about the same. But you go back and visit those two different guys six months, 18 months, three years later, are you going to notice a difference? Yes or no? One guy's gained 30 pounds, the other guy's lost 30 pounds. One guy got a promotion at work because all these positive things he's put into his head, it's spilling out when he's in the office. One guy's taking walks with his wife in the evening. He's lost weight. Man, he's listening to books on marriage, on, 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 on self-help. And man, his romantic life with his wife has never been better. Where the other guy's always negative because he's listening to political talk radio. He's gained weight. He sits on the couch. And he wonders why his wife doesn't pay him any attention. See, that's the compound effect. Is that making sense? Yes or no? It not only works in our life, but it works in our churches. Yes, sir. In churches? Yes. I have. Not at first. See, the, what's interesting with revitalization is, is, is churches will often jump on right away. Man, they're bored. They like it. It's fun. It's exciting. But eventually what happens is they hit a wall. They hit a wall. It's kind of like when you're running a marathon. You, you hit that wall, right? But churches that have that mindset of being intentional, man, they dig in and they keep they keep pursuing. Um, out of all of the churches we worked with, I won't say which one, but I've only had one church decide to step away from it. And they, they no longer wanted to participate. But I sensed that from the very beginning, from that very first church board meeting, when I asked the question, is there any reason why somebody would not want to bring somebody to the church? There were a couple of board members that got really frustrated with that question. And I even approached the pastor and I said, are you sure this is right? No, 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 no. let's do it, let's do it. It'll, it'll be all right. But four months into it, the pastor said, hey, the church board decided they don't want to do this anymore. I said, that's fine. I'm, you know, I appreciate that. Thank you for your time, but uh, we'll move on. Yes, sir. I always got questions. Who wrote this book? Um, I don't remember the name. Okay, it's, I'm just looking it up here. But it's called The Compound Effect. Okay. It's, it's, not, it's not a religious book. No, okay. Okay. Right. The idea is you, you don't want to build the culture around the pastor. How do you do that? That's hard to do. Yeah. That's hard to do. Because he's in charge. Right. 
So you, you, as a church board, you do walk a fine line. You want to support your pastor, encourage your pastor. If, if, if the pastor is successful, the church is successful kind of thing, you know. But you don't want to build it just around the pastor because we've seen what happens when a pastor moves or in some of these mega churches, if, there's a, if, if the pastor has a moral failure, everything is built around the pastor. Yeah. Right. I know that. I understand that. But... Well, one of the things we do with churches going through revitalization or revangelism is we encourage churches to find three areas that they're going to make their bread and butter. Three areas that's going to become their identity as a church. One of the, one of the most dangerous things in any church is an overfilled calendar where all ministries are kind of doing their own thing and there's, there's no intentionality, one focus, one mind. These are our three areas that we want to focus on. And, and most churches, you know, they'll choose, you know, children's and family, you know, we'll say children's ministries. Or they'll say an inspiring worship service. And they'll say, you know, a loving atmosphere. And so everything the church does is now focused on those three areas. And that becomes the culture of that church. Well, here's an example. So our church, it was a church plant that was started. And our, one of the pillars was small groups. And everybody in the church was in a small group. Whatever time it kind of, and then now, from a pastor's perspective, it's not important. Right. It's hard, it's hard to support that when the pastor is not involved. I think a lot of that starts when you interview a new pastor. That's because, you know, when you do that interview process, if a church is focused on these and you say, as a church, these are our three goals. This is what we're about. If you're on board, pastor, then, then join us. But if you don't like these three goals and they're not your passion, then maybe we need to look somewhere else. Yeah, that happens in the interview process. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. It's also the strength of the board, the respect and the love of the board. But you look at a pastor in two different ways. Is there the shepherd, the leader, they're also the employee of the Right, church. right. Uh, you know, there, there's actually a, there's a, there's a test that, that we do in church planting. We haven't done it yet in other areas, but in church planting, it's a, it's a, it costs $10. It's called APEST. It's an APEST survey. It's based on Ephesians 4 where it looks at what are the strengths of the pastor. And it's like apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher, you know. And so it's important for the church to understand what type of pastor are they getting. Because not all, and then shepherd, shepherd. Not all pastors are shepherding. No, we took over you know? to find our, our are very, pastor because of those reasons. Some are very type A, you know, and they're not shepherding. So if you're not a shepherding pastor then you need to have somebody on your team or a leader in your church that is shepherding that can kind of make up for, you know, where you lack. And, and same is true, you know, if you're a very shepherding pastor, but you're not a very evangelistic type pastor, then you need to have somebody who's evangelistic. Thankfully, Jesus was all of them. But um, so, yes, sir. I have uh, two questions. Um, first, going back to the secret um, Visitor. Yes. Um, do you do you use an Adventist agency or, or, or is this a random person? No, we have people. We have, we have Adventists that we send. Okay. 
I've, I've got a couple of people. I've got a family, husband and wife, and they've got a 13-year-old son that I use. Then I've got a single gentleman who actually had left the Adventist church and then came back, and I use him as well. So these are the two. And so they're Adventists, and I charge a $100 fee for the church, unless you're going through revitalization, then you don't get charged. But other churches will get charged a fee because I pay that person. I, so what I do for Secret Visitor is they have like a four or five page questionnaire and I cover their mileage from their house to the church and I pay them a hundred dollar honorarium is what the fee is. That survey is provided by you. Do you have that available? I do. If you give me your email address, I'll email it to you. I'll be happy to do that. Maybe at the end, if you guys give me your email address, I'm happy to share that with you. I don't have it on the, on the website. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and second and final, um, to affirm, I'm going through the process, the mission-driven process with Dr. Bradley. Actually, yeah. he's a member of my church. It, oh, he's smart, man. He's retired. Yes. Oh, smart man. So smart. Absolutely. But we go up against that wall because... Being organized on mission, getting our churches organized on mission, it, it, it starts with that calendar that is going everywhere. Right. And everybody wants to accomplish this, that, and on the other. What do you do um, for, for boards when you go in, for the board that you go in and they're not agreeing on, they're not, they have, they're not yet agreed on mission. Right. What do you do to inspire that? Mm. Or do you just leave that up to the local? Do you do anything to inspire them to see the vision as to where revangelism right. can, can take? Yeah, great question. And, you know, I don't have like the perfect, like the silver kind of bullet, you know. But what I encourage them to do is a couple things. I, I think church boards should take an annual retreat every year. I think that should be a part of the church's budget, where every year the church board gets away. And I know it's hard because a lot of the board members are busy doing stuff on Sabbath. And so if they're all gone, they often are the ones that teach the classes. So sometimes you've got to find a holiday weekend where they leave like a Saturday afternoon through like a Monday. But I always encourage church boards, take a retreat every year, you know, in the fall. And, in the, and, and, and know that it's coming up. And so really plan on spending time in prayer you know, seeking the Holy Spirit, preparing your heart. But then at that retreat is where the board really comes together um, and talk about what is our vision, you know? What are the non-negotiables? What do we want to see? But I'll share with the church board best practices of what other churches focus on to become a growing church. And I'm going to get to that here in just a few minutes. Yeah. And so, for example, the churches in the Washington Conference that we have going through revitalization, if they've signed up for revitalization, now this is different than revangelism, a lot of the same steps and principles are the same, but churches that sign up to go through revitalization, we actually set aside $5,000 per church to be used at the pastor's discretion. And one of the things we encourage that pastor to do is to bring his church board um, on a weekend retreat. So what we did in this case, we've got a number of churches where the pastor and the church board have actually come to this conference, the Propel Conference, and we covered their registration, their hotel, 
and their travel costs to come down here. Because at the end of the day, we want to invest in the local leadership. And, and you know, the, the conference, my job is to be more of an advisory role. So I don't ever want to step in and tell the church, these are the things you have to focus on. Um, I want them to come up with, as they're led by the Holy Spirit, what they think is best for them. But I, I give suggestions on best practices. You have to focus on children's and young families. If you want to grow a church, you know, you got to have things like small groups, inspiring worship service. So, you know, nothing's really all that new under the sun. Now, phase two, this is where you're cultivating uh, the soil. And in phase two, and again, these are links. On the conference website, you click on these. These are links. There's a couple of things we do. Number one, we have a link there to help the church get to know their community. It goes to citydata.com. You have to get to know your community. Step number two, now... We're constantly looking at ways to update, revise, add new materials. But step two, one of the things we offer is we offer Arise Online. Are you familiar with Arise Online? Um, now, I worked for years at Amazing Facts teaching at their AFCO program. So I don't, I'm not paid by Arise, which is a separate entity. But I'm a big fan of Ty Gibson. I, I, I like David. I like their, their, their teachers, their coaches, their trainers. And so... They're not giving me anything to, to endorse this. But what we want to do is we want to invest in the local church. So during phase two, we want as many church members as possible to sign up and start going through the Arise online training. Now, this is a screenshot of their website. This is where the link takes you to. But check this out. For 50 bucks a month, you could have up to 12 people in your church. That's only $600 a year. For 100 bucks a month, you could have up to 25 people. For 150 bucks a month, you could have up to 100 people. You could have almost your entire church enrolled in going through the Arise online training. Now, these prices here are what the Arise sets up. But what we do with revangelism is the Washington Conference, we cover half the cost. And so if a church said, hey, we want to have 12 people signed up to go through the Arise online, you know, it's $600 for a year, but half of that would be subsidized by the Washington Conference. And so this is during phase two. Interesting enough, I have not yet had anybody take me up on this offer. Now, the Arise Online training isn't just training to be like a Bible worker. I mean, that's part of it. But it's, it's, it's you know, kind of relighting that fire in the hearts of our laity. And so if we had a church with 100 people and they signed up, they would have one year to complete the course. If you just go through it and really invest your time, you could do it in three months. You could do it in three months, but you have up to a year. Now, what would you do as a pastor if you had 50 church members going through an online course together, learning how to not only be inspired but to be trained soul winners. You know? So again, the idea with revangelism is investing in our local leadership, our local members. Because I believe the greatest asset to the Adventist church is a lay member on fire for Jesus. Isn't that true, pastors? When you've got a young family, when you've got a couple, 
a retired couple, a single person, when they're on fire for Christ and they want to share Jesus and they know how to do it and they're not socially awkward, <laughs> you know, but they know how to connect and carry on a conversation. And, and, and you know that they're giving Bible studies and they come to you and say, Pastor, here's a family I've been doing Bible studies with and they want to get baptized. That's the sweetest the sweetest thing any pastor can hear is, Pastor, i got a family I've been doing Bible studies with and they want to be baptized. And so again, this is all about investing in local people in our church. The next one is, under phase two, is we want the church board to go through the book, The Big Four. How many of you are familiar with The Big Four? Some of the pastors are, a lot of you are. It's a great book. It's, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's getting dated. It's about 20 years old, but the principles are, are you know, they, they stand the test of time. So this book in a nutshell is Dr. Kidder. What he did is he studied all growing churches across North America, growing Adventist churches, and he found out that growing churches all have four things in common. And that's why they were growing four things. That's why it's called the big four. Do you want to know what those four things are? You got to read the book. You gotta read the book. So here's what we've done is we've encouraged churches going through evangelism or church revitalization to actually preach through this book. So we've taken this book. You can take a picture if you want. We've broken it down to 11 sections because a lot of our pastors have a two-church or a three-church district. So sometimes the pastor's not the one preaching, but it may be a lay person, an elder that's preaching. So we've encouraged churches to just take this book and here's an 11-part sermon series. You read those pages and you create a sermon based upon that. And so again, it's taking the church through revangelism. Now, phase three is planting the seed. Now, there are a couple areas in phase three that we want to touch on. Number one is every church that wants to grow is going to sign up, I believe, for some type of Bible study offer. Now, I like the Sermon View Interest Generator. Um, are you familiar with the Sermon View Interest Generator? They're not paying me for this, but it's a great product. We've used it. That's where they'll run a social media campaign for your church. And depending on your budget and how many people are able to give Bible studies, they'll guarantee you like two or five or 10 new Bible study interests every month. And I tell you, they're very true to their word. And if they don't reach that number in the year, they'll keep on going for you until they, oh, I'm here speaking of the devil, right? <laughs> hey, man, we're talking about sermon view. Yeah. And um, to and fro in the earth. Thanks for asking, Brian. Yeah. And so uh, I'm talking about the Sermon View Interest Generator oh, yeah. as a part of, uh, yeah, as a part of evangelism. And so it's a great product. Every growing church should be using this to help grow their church. Number two, every church should run a Bible school. Under phase three, there's a bunch of links to different ministries, different Bible schools. And number three is start small group. Bible studies. I'm going to show you here in a few minutes a study that was done by the North Pacific Union Conference on growing churches up here. And one of the things they all had in common was small groups. Growing churches have small groups. As soon as I'm done with an evangelistic meeting, I encourage churches to start small groups. I'm almost, I'm convinced to the point where like, if you want to be a member, if I was pastoring, you want to be a member of my church, you have to be a member of a small group. Oh, we're not going to accept your membership. <laughs> you have to be a member of a small group. Now, phase four, I better keep plugging along here. Phase four is 
irrigating and culti cultivating for harvest. Now, I should point out that even though there's six phases, what happens in one phase will bleed over into what happens in another phase, all right? So it's not like it's now, okay, it's, um, what is today's date? April the, is it the 9th? I'm not April, May. It's May 9th. We are now on phase four. So anything from phase one to three no longer matters. Now we're on, no, no, it, it it's really bleeds over, all right? And so one of the areas we want to focus in on phase four is becoming a welcoming church. And here's a book we encourage our people to read. Focus on a welcome ministry. The first seven seconds when a visitor walks into a church, within the first seven seconds, they have already made up their mind if they're going to return to that church or not. They haven't even heard the sermon yet. But in the first seven seconds. And so when we talk about welcome ministry, think of like a bullseye. So we first start off, and we're taking a church through revitalization or revangelism. Oh, I touched the cord. Don't step on the cord. The first thing we do is we look at the church's website. What does the church website look like? Is it friendly? Is it up to date? Whenever somebody moves into your area, if they're like already an Adventist or maybe they're looking for an Adventist church, the first place they go is they'll Google Seventh-day Adventist church in my area. And so the first place they'll go, even before they step into your church, is they will check out your church's website. By a show of hands, how many of you have looked at your church's website in the last month? Let me see your hands. Oh, good deal. A number of you have. It hasn't changed, and I'm disgusted with it. I've complained for four years. So. <laughs> yeah. One of the reasons I'm now, if, if, now, if a church doesn't, you know, a lot of churches have someone who's tech savvy who can update it and maintain the church's website. But if you don't have anybody in your church that can do that, there's ministries that you can outsource that to. Is, is that correct, yes or no? I see her standing in the very back with a smile. I am, yeah. <laughs> so there's ministries that will, obviously for a fee, because they're working for you, um, but they will maintain and create a beautiful, maintain it, a website for you. You have to have a good looking website. Not just the generic one that the NAD can produce, but an actual good looking website. Number two, we look at social media presence. When we're doing revitalization, we look at the church's social media presence. We look at the church's parking lot. First impressions. You know, we talk about um, what does the front entrance look like? What is the greeting team? What is the follow-up? And so when I go and I visit a church for the first time, I walk into that church and I look at, okay, what does the parking lot look like? Are there weeds in the parking lot? Is it, are, are the lines painted? Do they look nice? Are there plants? Is there fresh mulch, especially like the spring or the summer? What is the, what is the, the curb appeal look like? You know, I picture myself walking into that church. Does somebody open the door for me or do I have to open the door? When I walk into the church, what do I smell? Does it smell like a damp, musty kind of smell? You know, or is there an air freshener? Is there a nice fragrance? What do I hear? Do I hear some nice music in the background? How am I greeted? You know, what does the person do? It's amazing how much time we spend on like training people how to give Bible studies, which we need to, you know, training people how to preach sermons, which we need to, 
But we don't spend a lot of time training our greeters on how to be greeters, you know? I mean, if you've ever walked into like, you know, if you've ever stayed like at a nice hotel in downtown Portland or Seattle or wherever you're from, when you walk into that nice hotel, how are you greeted, right? If you ever walk into like a Starbucks, you know, how are you greeted, you know? Are you acknowledged? Even if they're busy and there's a line, does somebody say, hey, welcome, we're glad you're with us, we'll be with you in just a moment. Walk into a mod pizza, you know, how are you greeted? And the reason you're greeted differently in these places is these businesses actually train their people how to greet. In churches, let's not just grab a greeter because they want to be a greeter. And I don't want to sound mean, I don't want to sound negative, but I'm going to be very honest with you. Can I, can I be honest with you? Look at who your greeters are. They don't have to be the best looking person at church. But remember, they're your first impression as a church. They need to be someone who's friendly, who's outgoing. They need to be someone who isn't, you know, bad to look at. Does that make sense? Yes or no? Right? They need to kind of put themselves together, be well kept. Right? They need to know how to shake a hand. Have you ever had someone do the dead fish when they shake your hand? I mean, these are all things that go into greeting somebody. They, know, they, they need to know how to smile, right? Hey, welcome to our church. We're glad you're here today. How to direct people around the church. To, to know that their job isn't just to hand out a bulletin. But their job is to make that person feel welcome. To know that they've got seven seconds. And during those seven seconds, it could determine if that person ever comes back again or not, right? And so we take greeting very, very serious as we go through. During phase four, this is where we also start talking about creating those small groups, creating bridge events, because up to this point, you've been training church members, they've been going through Arise Online, the church has taken the NCD survey, they're working on their lowest factor, right? You've had a secret visitor, You've built a database of interests that you built through SermonView or any other resource out there. You've been praying over the names in your database. Now you're getting ready to start inviting people to your church. And what's incredible is when, when churches do all these things and they're intentional about them, what we find is people just start showing up at church. They weren't invited by anybody at church, but people just start walking into the church because that church is, is ready. Something else I should mention, let me go back real quick. On this whole thing on greeting, take a look at what your entrance to your church looks like, like the front lobby. What does it look like? How is the carpet? How are the tables? Does, does the furniture look like it was purchased in the 1970s or is it modern? You know, what do the pictures look like? Is it crowded? I find in a, in a lot of church lobbies, it's very, very crowded and people can't really gather there. So these are all the things that we want to look at when we're talking about church revangelism. Let me go back. So in bridge events, I like to follow what Jesus did in the book of John. And you look at the, the examples Jesus did, he's always meeting needs. So when we do bridge events, when we do small groups, we're always talking about how can we meet social, spiritual, emotional, physical needs. In John 2, 
Jesus turned the water into wine. He met a social need in John 3. He meets with Nicodemus, a spiritual need in John 4. He meets a woman at the well, an emotional need. And in John 5, he heals the paralyzed men. They're at the pool of Bethesda, and Jesus was meeting a physical need. So in small groups, in bridge events, we're always talking about how can we serve and meet needs. Step number three. Another thing a church needs to focus in on are the children's ministries. Now, I've met with church boards, and I've had church boards tell me that they're all about children's ministries. And when I say, how much do you budget every month? What is your annual budget like for children's ministries? And I've, I've met churches that say they're about children's ministries, but they don't budget any money towards it. Now, I started off as a Bible worker. My first three years, I worked for the Northern California Conference. I was their conference Bible worker. And so I love Bible work. I love doing Bible work. But with that said, what we're now doing in Washington, I'm encouraging churches that send in requests for Bible workers, instead of hiring on a Bible worker, I want to see churches hire on a children's ministries coordinator for the church. That's where I'm focused right now. Instead of hiring on a Bible worker, and this is coming from a Bible worker, I'm not against Bible workers, but what I've seen in getting more bang for your buck is hiring on a children's ministries coordinator. Yes, sir. Uh, I am with you on that. I have a question. Now, yeah. this, would this come from a lay person, or is this like a professional going through various training for children's ministry, or is this just a, a lay person with passion that can dedicate time to developing I would say yes to both. <laughs> the, the, you know, the more training, the more equipped a person is. So we actually, I don't have it on my computer, but we created a, because we had, to, we had to create a job description for this new position. So we created a job position with our HR department in Washington, and, a, and we set up the pay scale and everything. I think the pay was around 20 bucks an hour. And so we look for somebody who had experience, not just a person who likes to do it, um, but who has experience. And some of our churches, we've hired people outside, not outside the Adventist church, but they're Adventists. We're not going to hire non-Adventists for this, but someone who's not a member of that church. In other cases, we've actually hired on a local member of that church. And so what we've done with the Washington Conference is we've told the local church, we will help fund this position for one year. We will contribute up to $1,000 a month as a conference, up to $1,000 a month for one year. The church covers anything above and beyond that $1,000. And then once it comes to year two, if the church wants to keep doing this, then they have to fund the entire thing. But we'll actually get them started that first year. And, and the churches that have hired on a children's ministries director, we've only had a couple of them, but they have seen the greatest growth. In, in membership and in baptisms. One church in particular, it's, it's the Mount Vernon Church in the Washington Conference. Before, before COVID hit, in January of 2020, they were averaging 25 people a week with about four kids. During the pandemic, they went through church revitalization. They're now averaging over 70 people a week with 25 kids. And they hired on a children's ministries director. Yeah. And so we've, but you know, when you do that, you have to really invest in the children's ministries. And so we've, we've done things like, and now I got this idea from Bill McClendon. He did this in Maryland, is hold a children's church every single month. 
When you think about, how many of your churches do vacation Bible school? Um, how many non-Adventists do you typically get at your VBS? Are most of the kids non-Adventists? How much do you spend on a VBS on average? $5,000. That's a lot. Well, our members usually contribute everything we need. The, we do have money for vacation right. but our members are very supportive. When I say a lot, I didn't mean that in a bad way. I mean, like, wow, that's, like, that's a lot. It's good. The reason I say that was when you look at how many non-Adventists you get during a VBS for how much you spend to get that non-Adventist in your church compared to what we spend like on a typical evangelistic meeting, which I still do, I'm not against. What I have found is VBS is a great evangelistic ministry. But what we've failed to do is to capitalize on it. We get a lot, I'll get you in a minute, we get a lot of kids to our church, but at the end of the week, often there's very little follow-up with the families or or with the kids. One of the things Bill McClendon taught me, he did this in Maryland, is they would do a monthly, like a high-end VBS every single month. And what happens is when you get the kids, guess who else you get? Parents. You get the parents. When you get the kids, you get the parents. And uh, of course, I'm a big fan of uh, Pathfinders. That's why I wasn't here this last week and I was camping with our Pathfinder clubs up at Sunset Lake. Both my kids are in VBS. I think conducting annual VBS. Here's something we tried just recently, just a month ago. That church in Mount Vernon, we tried something and we had 30 kids show up to it. Is we, it was on a Sunday, not a Sabbath. It was in the church gymnasium, not the sanctuary, but we hosted a video game tournament for the community. And we had 30 kids show up for that. And, you know, it, we just tried it to see how does it work. We had 30 kids show up to that. We had in our gymnasium, we served pizza and cake. We had set up in there on a, with a, a surround sound or a, a sound system and a projector. We had uh, our video game we used was a Mario Kart 8. And we had kids register. We had, like, like, when you think about the brackets, like the NCAA brackets, you know, we had the brackets set up with the kids' names. And we had, we had chairs set up, and it was projected on a big screen. And, of course, we opened with prayer, and we closed with prayer. And we had 30 kids enroll in that Mario Kart 8 tournament. And uh, those 30 kids, and we're going to do another one this summer with another game. Now, I took some heat for this. I had some people text me and say, how is it the Washington Conference Evangelist is promoting video games at church? Now, think about that for a moment. I'm not into video games. I don't play video games. I've got a 10-year-old son who plays video games. More people play video games today, especially kids, than, than go to the movies, than go to theme parks, I mean, video games are huge. And so, you know, I was thinking about how do I tap into this younger generation? I mean, you know, I think about what Paul said. Paul said to the Jew, I'm a Jew. To the Greek, I'm a what? Greek. To the gamer, I'm going to be a gamer. Now, we're not doing violent games. They're all family-friendly family games. But we thought, what would bring a bunch of kids to our church that would bring their parents that then allow us, while the kids are gaming, we can interact with their parents. We can tell them about our upcoming small groups. We can tell them about our upcoming sermon series. We can tell them about other events that we're doing. And we have 30 kids show up, and it cost us about $2,000. 
Not quite, about $1,600. But 1,200 of that was just buying the video game stuff. You know, it was the startup cost. And so we're gonna do another one this summer, but this time we're gonna really market it on social media in the summer and try and get more kids to come out to continue to do outreach. Yes, sir. Do you have the template for that? <laughs> I can send you some stuff. Yeah, give me your email address and I'll send you some stuff. And so the, the idea I'm saying is you don't necessarily have to do that, but we're just trying to think outside the box. Get, get creative. You know, one size doesn't fit all. And so we're looking at what, what Richie talked about is we're looking at the, you know, what are the principles? We wanted to create community. And those kids had a great time. Yeah. Yes, sir. So, uh, we're in a small church, we don't have any kids, and we don't have any teachers. We don't have kids, can't have teachers. Um, but uh, Richie Brower uh, in our conference suggested that we do like a um, adventure club mm -hmm. once a week for Sabbath school. Yeah. So we had uh, eight of our church members go up and do a, a weekend training session. And so that's what we're looking at. But um, there's been a little bit of Right. So we're kind of working through the thing, but I'm excited about the possibility of just having a set school for these kids because right. parents have to come too. Yep. You're getting creative, and yeah, you figure things out. You try things, and you learn from them. We tried the video game thing, then we met a week later, which was just a couple weeks ago, with the team and said, okay, what worked, what didn't work? And what I found out was three of the guys that are now helping out with the video game ministry, there are three people who've been, who had just started coming to church there. They're not even Adventist, I found out. And one of the guys, in talking with him, he had gone to a Dan Benzinger evangelistic meeting not check this out I was going to share this so the guy's name is Conrad all right most people that are grown-ups that are in the video games I don't want to be I don't want to stereotype but they're kind of nerdy would you agree they're not they're not usually like the athletic jocks and so Conrad is kind of a nerdy guy not kind of he is nerdy all right nine years ago when Dan Benzinger was our evangelist I visited Conrad, because he was coming to an evangelistic meeting. I visited Conrad, and I'd forgotten about it, because a lot of time had gone by. He is now helping out with this video game ministry, and, and as we're talking, and I'm getting to know him, he begins to share with me how he'd gone to a Dan Benzinger meeting, and all of a sudden it hit me. I said, Conrad, I remember I visited you during that seminar. You were a guest. He says, I'm still a guest. I'm not a member yet. Do you want to be a member? He goes, yeah, I'd like to join the church, but nobody's asked me yet. Oh, wow. So he's going to join by profession of faith. Low yeah, low-hanging fruit. And so here, I had no idea that doing that, we'd actually uh, grab somebody. Yes, Pastor. I want, to, I want to affirm what you're doing. And I know there's some, there may be some people here thinking about the whole video game thing and stuff. Um, but in Adventism, I believe that we have a lot of problems. But one particular that really bothers me is that we value children's baptisms less than adult yeah. baptisms. Right. And ministries aren't taken seriously until you're producing adult baptisms. Right. And that's a huge problem. Mm -hmm. And so what, what you're talking about as far as um, making sure that our youngest people are feeling valued and loved even if it's in a way that uh, makes us uncomfortable, 
Those kids are going to be playing those games at home. They are. Why not have them play? Why not have them play at our church and let, let them feel loved in community? So I, I want to affirm that. And secondly, um, whatever I think we can do, I'm, I'm here because I'm at a new church and I'm like, you just mentioned my uh, scenario perfectly. Uh, in less than six months, um, entered into a situation where they asked me to come in to deal with certain situations, toxicity in the church, all of that. Now we're having to have that come to Jesus talk mm. with the board and say, hey, now, now what are we going to do? And that's why I'm here. In my previous church, we decided that we were going to be a church for the community. Mm. And we went to the community, to the leadership in the community, and asked them what they needed. And, you know, all communities need the same thing. Right. They need after-school programs. They need youth programs. They need summer programs. They need... Um, translations for uh, underserved communities, all, all the same things, right? We went and made those connections. And through those connections, we learned that when you do ministry correctly for the community, the community is willing to pay for it. Mm -hmm. They were, at, at the, the church where I was previously, we were raising about $40,000 a year to do children's programs. Wow. We were baptizing 8, 10 kids a year. Wow through those children's programs. Praise God. My church would put in 1200 bucks a year. Mm -hmm. The rest of that would come in from the community. And I want to encourage you to go outside of the walls and, and do those things and, and make connections with your community leaders and ask them what you need, what they need. Instead yeah. of sitting around and trying to come up with ideas, you know, it, it, it was a, an eye-opening experience to see how the community said, yes, we believe in what you're doing, we'll fund it. Yeah. That's incredible, isn't it? It's incredible. Yeah. Blew my mind. I had no idea that was possible. Well, this video game thing, I, I, I didn't come up with it on my own. I actually, last summer, at the called convention we had in, in uh, Kentucky, they had a shark tank they were doing every evening. And I was there every night because I was, I was writing down notes, man. What, what are people doing? I want to I, I wanna learn. How many of you knew there was a shark tank at the called convention last year? C can I brag a little bit more on the Washington conference? <laughs> Out of those three nights, we took first place two of the nights. I'm so excited about what you're doing. Literally... And the third night, we came in, I think, fourth place. But it was a pastor from Arizona who his Shark Tank thing he did was on the video games. And I started talking with him, and he's the one that's been kind of coaching me on it. And it's out of my comfort zone. I'm not a video game person. It is out of my comfort zone. Um, but, but picture this. So we had the brackets. Well, they were written up the brackets, and you could see it. You know the brackets worth the getting. They got down to the final four. And all right, everybody, it's the final four. And they were, we had four chairs lined up, all facing the screen with the remotes. And everybody, there was probably 50 of us, 60 of us, all standing around these four kids, watching them do Mario Kart. And if you've ever played Mario Kart, it's just a race car game. Nothing, we didn't do anything bloody, nothing violent. It was so exciting. And then the kid, his name was Sam, not a church. He goes to our Adventist school, but he's not a church member. He knew. It came down to him and Carlitos. And, 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 and Sam, when he, he knew he was going to win. And when his car went across that finish line, man, he stood up like this. And he was like that. And everybody was cheering, Sam, Sam, Sam. And he was high-fiving. And you would have thought he won the basketball game. You, you can't. Can't pay enough for moments like that to build community and excitement. He'll never forget that the rest of his life. He'll never forget that. We took him over to the winner's table, all of them, and we had 
we had, I think, nine or ten prizes, then based upon where you ranked one through tenth, you got to pick first, and, oh, man, Sam. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's actually, it's going to be at uh, uh, the church I go to. I'm not a member there. My membership's at the conference office, but my wife and kids are members there. So we're going to do another one in July. I think that's a lot of times you're going to get second and third. People are just going to talk to each other. Oh, yeah. More and more and more and more. Yeah, we got 30 people with just word of mouth marketing. Yeah, you're going to get way more next and flyers. We handed out flyers to kids. It was just word of mouth marketing. We wanted to do kind of a test run to see how it would go, but the one in July... We're going to do it on social media and try to get more kids. And the idea, though, is to reach their parents. That's a, yeah, as a parent, how right. do you feel about a church that makes your kid feel like that? Right. Yeah. Uh, excellent. That kid comes home and says, Mom, I won first place. And, you know, and, and, and she goes on the church's you know, Facebook and she sees her son you know, like this holding up first place. And, man, yeah, it was pretty powerful. So phase five. This is the exciting time. This is the harvest. This is the evangelistic meeting. You've been building all the way up. Again, each phase has a video, and then the video has below it our different links. Step one, churches ought to do a reaping meeting every 12 to 18 months. Do you believe that? Yes or no? Uh, uh, Pastor Barry, do reaping meetings work? Yes or no? Yes, they do. They do. You guys just, we had one together last fall. We did. We had some good results. The older couple that sat down in the front. Yeah, that would, they just, yeah. That was a great meeting. But it was the follow-up that the church did under your leadership and the church. It was the follow-up. I'm, I'm going to get into that, but it was that follow-up. That's what brought the success. But a meeting every 12 to 18 months. Every church should do that. Now, some churches may not want to do the traditional three-week, four-week meeting. We encourage churches in our conference, hey, pastor, if you don't want to do the nightly one, that's okay. But do like an eight to ten-part sermon series Sabbath morning with having appeals at the end for baptism. Because you'll get baptisms. There's always low-hanging fruit in churches. There's low-hanging fruit. And you'll get baptism. So even if it's not the nightly one, do it Sabbath morning. Eight to ten part sermon series. Go through the S's. You know, salvation, sanctuary, you know, salvation, state of the dead, Sabbath, second coming. Go through all those S's, you know, and the state of the dead. And you'll, you'll, you'll pick people up. In fact, there's a great book, another one by Tom Rayner, called Surprising Insights from the Unchurched. In this book, he studied a thousand non-believers who converted to Christianity. And he asked them the question, what was it that brought you to know Christ. And so a thousand, you know, um, uh, uh, non-believers, and they said their number one thing that brought them over was the biblical preaching of the pastor. Number two, the church stood for something. Number three, friendship. Number four, music. I want to point this one out, though, right here. The biblical preaching of the pastor. We do not have to preach a watered-down message to win people. You can preach the distinct teachings of the three angels message wrapped in the love of Christ because in this study he discovered thousand non-believers became believers because of the biblical preaching of the pastor so never be afraid to preach truth just make sure you preach it in love 
the North Pacific Union Conference did a study several years ago. This was the thing when Dan Cerns was still here, so this was a little bit ago. But uh, they studied all of the growing churches throughout the North Pacific Union Conference. That would be Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, and Alaska. It's probably true whichever union or conference you're in across the North American division. And they found the churches that grew the fastest were churches that had small groups, members giving Bible studies, and annual reaping meetings. Those were the churches that grew. Those churches that had those three things. Step number two, don't start from scratch. Use evangelistic sermons that have already been written. And so if I can go back just a couple of quick slides, I want to show you on here is underneath phase five, we actually have links on here that will take you to like... Um, it is written, Voice of Prophecy, ASI. So I encourage pastors and lay people, don't feel like you've got to write everything from scratch. Use some of the sermons that have already been written and they have the slides, just make them your own. And so we've got links to those. Um, there's also links, since someone in, is in here from Sermon View, uh, there's also a link there for Sermon View Evangelistic Marketing uh, media marketing, but there's also one for seminars and limited as well. So those are the two ministries that do a lot of the marketing for um, our churches for evangelistic meetings. And of course, step three, work with Sermon View or seminars unlimited on your marketing needs. Now, I've worked with both ministries; they're both good. But I will say this, and not just because Sermon View is in the room, but Sermon View has been great to work with because. They'll create a great-looking site for you. They have the, the online registration. They'll do the brochure. They'll do the social media. It's all kind of under one umbrella. So you're just working with one entity rather than trying to work with a whole bunch of different groups and get them to communicate. It can get kind of... Uh, uh, things can get lost in the shuffle. So I really enjoy working with... Uh, with the team at Sermon View. And then phase six, this of course is preserving and perpetuating the harvest. And one of my favorite things to do on there is to do the Bible marking guides. And that's what uh, Pastor Barry was talking about. So step one, this is the most important step and it must be planned months in advance. Never start thinking of what are we going to do for follow-up during phase five. You should know what you're going to do in phase six way before you ever get to the evangelistic meeting. And studies after studies show follow-up. Things like Bible marking guides work. Reviewing the message. Getting people plugged into a small group. The goal is to build community and review the gospel presentations. I've been doing that with churches in the Washington Conference. As soon as the meeting ends, we don't tell people the meeting's ending. We just tell them, hey, we are now transitioning to meeting once a week in small groups. And so we just continue the evangelistic meeting, but we do it in people's homes in small groups. And step number three is you got to plug people into ministry. If they're a member of your church, they need to be plugged in the ministry. Now, we typically won't make them a deacon or an elder or a deaconess, but we'll, you know, we'll do the background checks, but we'll get them plugged into children's ministries, greeting, you know, doing things like that. We find out what are their strengths, what are their passions, and we get them plugged in. In a nutshell, beloved, this is the revangelism cycle. And as a church works this cycle, it's based upon prayer, based upon the Holy Spirit, faith-based optimism, being intentional, creating habits. And once you work this entire cycle, then you stop and don't ever do anything again, right? 
No, you revisit and say, what worked? What didn't work? How can we improve? And like a cycle, you then do it again. And you do it again. See, we wanted to create something for our pastors and churches that wasn't going to be just like another program, but something that would stand the test of time, something that we could use until Jesus comes back. And I want to see more money plugged into the pre-work and the follow-up. Equipping, discipling, training our lay members. Because at the end of the day, I don't want the evangelist to be the hero. I don't want the evangelist to be seen as the one that rides in the town and he's the hero. In fact, at the end of the day, I don't even want the local pastor to be the hero of the story. My goal is I want the lay people to be the hero. I want the lay people that are filled with the Holy Spirit to be the hero in the sense that they see God is working through them. And that's the evangelism cycle. Any questions? we got lunch coming up. You've been so patient. Any questions or comments or suggestions? And, you know, if you can ever think of anything that I missed on one of these phases, you're thinking, wait a minute, why don't you put this into that phase or this? Let me know because we can add stuff. I'm always looking for ideas. Yes, sir. Um, a question uh, regarding the two things. The first, we talk about getting our church to focus on three things. What do you think about that? One, um, especially if your church is in an area where they're, um, you know, like close proximity to Adventist churches. What do you think about, hey, this is our niche. Our niche is children, our niche is health, our niche is youth, whatever. Right. Uh, would you recommend that, or do you want to have at least an option for A lot of it, you have to do it based upon what the gifts are in your local church. If you want to do health, that's great. But if you don't have any health professionals, that can make it a little bit challenging. Because it's nice having some health professionals. It adds credibility when you do stuff. If you've got like some nurses and doctors, physical therapists, it certainly, it certainly helps. But you want to make sure the three things complement each other. For example, um, one of the churches I'm working with, they've chosen four things. And which I think two or three is plenty, but they chose four, and I, I'm just kind of the coach, you know, I gotta, I'm not a member there, so I'm not a, a, I don't have a vote in that, but I can give suggestions. But two of the three, the two of the four, they conflict each other, and, and, and it's creating a division in the church. Here's what I mean. One of them is children's ministries, and they've hired on a children's ministries director, and the church is, is, is going great. But the other area they want to focus in on is homeless ministry by having programs at the local church that homeless people can come to. And, 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 and some of you know where I'm going with this, and it sounds really mean. It sounds unchristlike to say what I'm about to say. Um, but it's a conflict. Because if you've got a lot of homeless people that are coming to the church for services... You know, what happens often is if they come long enough, and it doesn't even take that long, they'll start showing up and hanging out at the church even when you're not open. That's just the reality of it. But if you're also wanting to target children's and young families as a parent of a 10-year-old boy and a 15-year-old girl, I wouldn't feel comfortable, and it's going to sound really mean, but I hope you understand that my heart's in the right place. This is the dad talking here. I wouldn't feel comfortable having a bunch of homeless people in the church 
with my 15-year-old daughter and my 10-year-old boy. And the reason is, is because I understand that many people are homeless because of mental health reasons and drug addiction. And I believe we need to have ministries to address these and, and to help these. And I, I love serving people with mental health. Believe me, I do. Um, but the church has chosen these as their main ministries. And, I, and I've said to the church board, I'm saying to you, you've got to pick one or the other. You, or, or if you're going to do homeless ministry, you have to do it at like a neutral location away from the main church. Maybe rent a storefront, partner with the community, do it at a park. Um, but, you know, last summer when we had VBS, I was doing the class outdoors, you know, with the kids. I was, that was my station at VBS. And uh, we had a homeless guy show up and he was acting really weird, really strange. And he was carrying his cat by the back of the skin, you know, you know the moms do. He was carrying his cat out of his van, which looked like a crazy homeless van, carrying his cat like this, walking through our group of kids. The cat was covered in feces, and he was bringing it to the church because he wanted to clean it in the bathroom. And, you know, and I said to him, sir, can I help you? And he said, yeah, my cat's covered with... But he, you know, used the bat, and all these kids are there, like, you know, and it was, and so, so that's one of the challenges, and I shared this with the church, my own experience at that church, this is what happened at that church, and so you got to find what are the, the strengths, what, what are the gifts of the local church, but anytime you can focus on things like, like children's ministries, an inspiring worship service, you know, a welcoming atmosphere, if you can make those three things your bread and butter, you know, and it's going to take time. Remember the compound effect, right? It doesn't happen overnight. You got to keep working it, keep working it, keep working it, keep working it. And five years will go by, 10 years may go by, and all of a sudden your church is an overnight success. They don't know about all the hard work you put in, the sleepless nights, the praying, the planning, the, 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 the leadership retreats. They don't, they don't know about all that. But then you're an overnight success, and they want you to come and present at the next Propel conference. You know, and you take everything you did in 10 years, and you share it in one hour, and, you know, you become that overnight success as a church. And, you know, you, you put the work into it, and God blessed it because you prayed. And God bless you. Good question. Any other questions or comments? Did everybody get an air freshener and a pen? If you didn't get an air freshener or a pen, I'm going to have them up here. You're welcome to grab one. If you want to grab a little flyer, it basically, you can grab that. But I, I want to definitely have a prayer uh, with you guys. And then we're going to be dismissed here to have lunch. If you're here with the Washington Conference... If you're at the Washington Conference, we want to meet in the lobby out here at 4.30 today because I want to take you guys out to dinner. All right. So, hey, let's have a prayer. Father God, I just want to thank you and praise you for today. Lord, I certainly don't have all the answers, but we're scratching at the surface, Lord, and we're just looking for ways that we can uh, have growing churches. Growing churches that are growing in health, in numbers that are serving and ministering to their communities. I know, Lord, that we can never find a perfect church, but we can find a good church. And a good, healthy church doesn't happen overnight. Those churches are intentional, and they focus on prayer, your Holy Spirit, faith-based optimism. So, Father, help us to use what we know 
to make a difference for you and for your kingdom, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, there was a lot of good stuff in this episode, more than you could possibly implement all at once. So as we did at the Propel Conference, I want to encourage you to reflect on what you just heard. What was one big idea that you heard? You heard a lot of ideas, but what's one big idea that you can apply to your ministry right now? How will you apply this in your own ministry context? What are you inspired to do? When this episode finishes in another minute or so, I urge you to pause for five or 10 minutes and just let your mind wander. Ask God to give you a vision of how you can apply this in your own ministry. This reflection time can be really powerful. Okay, that's it for this episode. Special thanks to Tyler Long for sharing at this year's Propel Conference. This has been the Propel Podcast, inspiration and training to grow your church. The Propel Podcast is sponsored by the North Pacific Union Conference of Seventh-day Adventists and is produced by the crew at Sermon View Evangelism Marketing. I'm Larry Witzel, wishing you God's richest blessing in your evangelistic journey. Please join us again next time for another episode of the Propel Podcast. Mm-hmm.